Am I the only person here who has this problem? Especially at Thanksgiving. It's easier for me to put on a few pounds than it is to take off a few pounds. In fact, at times, I have suspected that just imagining a plate of food somehow added a few inches to my waistline. All I had to do to gain weight was just to gaze on a yummy sweet potato souffle or just eyeball a slice of pumpkin pie. All I did was think the thought, just put it in my mind, not in my mouth. And presto, the mere idea of it yielded instant inches, or so it sometimes seems. Actually, I have read recently that my suspicion may not be far from the truth. New research indicates that for some people, just thinking about food actually increases your insulin levels, which in turn makes you hungrier. Thoughts about food may not directly add inches to your midsection, but it can increase your appetite and prompt you to eat more. Thoughts are powerful forces, which causes me to think, if thoughts can produce hunger pains, can they stimulate other appetites as well? And I'm certain they can. In fact, your thought life fuels many of your drives and passions and desires. The thoughts you entertain mentally can affect you spiritually. They'll lead you to Christ or they'll lead you to sin. In my opinion, one of the big keys to living a victorious Christian life is found here in this morning's text. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, this is such a vital passage for us. But before we dive into verses 4 and 5, first understand the context of Paul's comments. Remember, Paul and his ministry had come under criticism in Corinth. There were critics in the church who were roughing up Paul's reputation. In these first nine chapters, Paul has defended himself, but he's done so diplomatically. He's been gentle in his defense. Now, though, at the beginning of chapter 10, his tone changes. He begins, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You see, one of the errors the Corinthian Christians had made in their estimation of Paul was to mistake meekness for weakness. Hope you know the two are not the same. Remember, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, refers to Moses as the meekest man in all the earth. But Moses was certainly far from being weak. In fact, the Greek word translated meekness, it means power under restraint. It was used for a wild stallion after it had been broken. Meekness refers to the person who has submitted to the bit and bridle of God's will. Think of Jesus. I mean, no one who has ever lived was stronger and more forceful a person than Jesus Christ. Yet all that power was harnessed and surrendered to God's will. You see, the point in this letter, to this point in this letter, Paul has been gentle in his response to the harsh criticisms. But his humility had been misinterpreted as inability. His critics assumed that he was kind because he lacked clout. That he was tender because he was a tender foot. That he had no real spiritual authority. Paul needs to grow more determined now in his defense. 
You see, the apostle has been falsely accused, and it's tarnished the gospel, and it's time for him to fight back. And so in chapters 10 through 13, he takes the gloves off, as they say, and he responds in a more forceful manner. The Corinthians' caricature of Paul was one of timidity, a person who was weak, and it implied that he could write a mean letter, but just take away the man's pen, and in person he'll shrink away in fear. Paul replies to this accusation in verse 2. He says, But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul is saying, If you want bold, I'll bring bold. He had tried to be nice in his first letter, but they had taken it the wrong way. If he has to be more direct, then so be it. And then he says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now understand, when Paul says in the flesh, he's speaking of human capabilities. Physical stature, a person's appearance, their oratorical skills. And yes, in these areas, Paul considered himself weak and unpolished. But understand, Paul didn't operate in the flesh. He wasn't limited by his flesh, for Paul walked and warred in the Spirit. Rather than rely on physical ability, or human ingenuity, or even his own personal grit, Paul trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit working in him and working through him. He tells them in verse 3, We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In these verses, Paul takes us to a battlefield. But it's a battlefield of an unusual variety. Here you'll find no barbed wire entanglements, no tanks, no camouflage tents. Here the soldiers aren't worried about biological weapons or even laser-guided missiles. Here people get wounded, but the wounds are not the kind that bleed. On this battlefield, AK-47s and hand grenades are worthless. The weapons of choice in this battle are spiritual and mental not physical and martial. Paul ushers us onto the battlefield of the mind. You see, whether you overcome sin in your life, whether you live to the glory of God, whether you enjoy the blessings of your salvation, whether you end up productive for God's kingdom, it all will be determined by what goes on in the gray matter. What is housed? What happens between your two ears? Bible teacher David Needham, he puts it this way, virtually every battle we will ever fight with sin will be won or lost on the turf of our imagination. There is a battle raging on the bluffs and buttes of your mind. Your thought life is not a playground. It is a battleground. And the stakes are eternally high. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 echoes Paul's statement here. Peter tells us, Gird up the loins of your mind. 
the phrase gird up, it means to get a grip. Paul is telling us that when it comes to our thoughts, it's time to roll up our shirt sleeves. It's time to get a grip on what we entertain in our minds. For Peter and Paul, this is an issue that calls for extraordinary effort, for persistence, for determination. This is where you should apply your energy until the job gets done. A serious follower of Jesus disciplines his mind to think pure and holy and godly thoughts. Imagine the Old Testament temple, clean and shiny on the exterior, but filthy and unkept in the inner court. That's hard to even picture. What good Levite or good priest would ever allow garbage to pile up in the sacred temple? The caretakers of Judaism would never allow the Holy of Holies, that area nearest the presence of God, to become a trash heap, a pig pen, a garbage can. Surely not. Such an idea would be totally unthinkable. And it should be just as unthinkable for us. For the New Testament tells us that as Christians, we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Thus, we need to keep our inner court, the inner person of our mind and of our soul, as pure as possible. Reserve your head and heart exclusively for the enjoyment and for the glory of God. Realize this. You are today where your thoughts have brought you. You'll be tomorrow where your thoughts will take you. Your thought life life shapes the rest of your life. Be careful what you think. It's what you'll become. I've heard it put, we are not what we think we are, but what we think we are. Outlook produces outcome. This is what the Bible tells us. Proverbs 27, 23 verse 7 reads, For as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. Thoughts yield attitudes, and those attitudes produce actions. Hey, if you're a Christian, God has done a miracle in your spirit, in the eternal part of your person. You've been forgiven of your sin. You've been given a brand new nature. God has put a love in your heart for Him and for the people around you. You are now a new creation in Christ. But that doesn't mean you'll immediately begin to think like one. Following our conversion, the mind has to be renewed. And this is where the battle begins. The Greek poet Horace once cautioned his students, Rule your mind, or it will rule you. Either you will control your thoughts, or your thoughts will control you. Once I was coaching my son Zach in Little League Baseball. These were nine, ten-year-old boys, and most had played baseball before. It was our first day of practice, and I was trying to impress on them the importance of playing smart baseball. And so I asked the team, what's the most important piece of equipment in baseball? Well, I'd asked this for teams earlier, past teams, and the boys would always answer, your glove, your bat, the catcher's mask, the batter's helmet. But when the kids were all done questioning, I would always surprise them by saying, no, it's your brain, it's your mind. Well, at that particular practice, one little boy named Mark, he raised his hand and he says, Coach, the most important piece of equipment in baseball is your cup. (laughs) Yep, Mark the little wise guy. 
But I suppose he was right. After I stopped laughing, I asked again, what's the second most important piece of equipment in baseball? Well, this morning, if I were to ask you, what's your most important piece of equipment in the game of life, how would you answer? Money? Connections? Talents? Well, the correct answer would be your thought life. We're in a battle, and the theater of conflict is in our minds. And here in verses 4 and 5, Paul examines three things. The foe, the fight, and the firepower. The foe, the fight, and the firepower. And here's our starting point. The good news about this war is that God promises us it is a fight we can win. In these two verses, we learn how. First, let's identify our foe. Paul points to a trifecta of evil thoughts. Strongholds, arguments, and high things. You see, these are the forms of thinking that rival the knowledge of God that elevate themselves above the truth of God in our lives. These are the thoughts that need to be cast down. On September the 9th, 2015, an article reported on a 48-year-old Chinese woman. She was found to have a 1.8-inch long needle stuck in her brain. She had suffered headaches for four decades and had been to the doctor multiple times, but the problem had never been discovered. Finally, a CAT scan revealed a nail underneath her skull. The location of the nail caused doctors to speculate that the sharp object had penetrated her skin shortly after her birth, before her skull had had a chance to harden into shape. Everyone was amazed that this person could live so long with a rusty nail sticking into their gray matter. Yet every one of us has been victimized by rusty, polluted thoughts. As Paul puts it, strongholds, arguments, high things cause us pain and ailments. If everyone here today was subjected to a spiritual CAT scan, trust me, it would reveal a dirty brain. Hey, first, Paul mentions strongholds. These are false assumptions that we develop about God and about life and about other people and even about ourselves. These presuppositions form over time. These are the ideas that get drawn from relationships and from life experiences, and they dramatically affect our outlook. Perhaps you grew up hearing people say, Oh, you're worthless. This negative identity was supported by a lack of attention at home from your parents. Kids at school chimed in. They always called you ugly. You were always the last one chosen on the playground. You weren't one of the cool kids. And even today, though your outward circumstances have changed dramatically, that mental scarring still exists. You're now loved and forgiven by God. He's blessed you with friends and family of your own. But you're still tormented by those deep-seated, painful feelings of rejection that formed earlier in your life. Those are strongholds. When you were younger, maybe your masculinity or your femininity got clouded or got confused. It was easier for you to bond with people of the same sex. 
This has impacted your sexual attractions today. You struggle with your own identity. This too is a type of spiritual stronghold. Realize these strongholds develop over many years. It's the constant dripping of disappointment and failed expectation that creates mounds of misconceptions in our minds. Piles of self-pity. Hills of hurt. Emotional stalactites form and fill the caverns of our mind. Rusty nails are put there earlier in our life by people other than us, but they still cause us tremendous pain years later. Sadly, these strongholds create a stranglehold on our lives. They rob us of the joy and peace that God desires for us. There are strongholds that, set, that beset us and that rob us of what God wants. And then there are what Paul calls arguments. And these are the justifications and rationalizations and the excuses we use to support the strongholds that have been formed. You see, these strongholds are inadvertent. They're the result of being fed false information. Often, they're the result of being hurt by someone else. But once they form, rather than tear them down, we often support them. We even build up arguments for them in our own thinking. Rationalizations. One translation of verse 5 puts it, Our battle is to break down every deceptive argument and every imposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. You see, not only do we hold on to these false assumptions, but we try to excuse them. We even try to defend them. Reminds me of the bitter old lady who never got married. Rather than open up her hurts to the love of God, she spent her whole life angry at men in general. In fact, when she died, her last will and testament contained an order. No male pallbearers at my funeral. It also provided her reasoning. They wouldn't take me out when I was alive, so I don't want them taking me out when I'm dead. Now that's some bitterness. Strongholds point us in the wrong direction. But arguments keep us headed in that misdirection. See, it's one thing to be moving down the wrong track, but it's another thing to develop excuses and self-serving philosophies to make us feel better about it. Our excuses have got to go. We need to cast down both strongholds and the arguments that support them. And then the third part of this evil trifecta are high things. High things are the tall walls that form in our minds that keep evil in and goodness out. You see, keep digging a hole long enough and it'll get so deep that you can't get out of it, at least on your own. You get stuck until help arrives. And this is what we do mentally and emotionally when we develop these false assumptions about life. You see, later, even when the evidence, the weight of the evidence is clear that, it, that these, aren't, these things aren't true, we still proudly protect the lie as if it were true because we built these walls. High things blind us to God's truth. They bar us from the Bible's teaching about life and even about ourselves. See, here's a great little quip. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. You see how we get stuck? 
by wrong thinking. High things are the destructive character that forms when you continually sow wrong thoughts. You can no longer see over or around the wall. Now stubbornness keeps you blind to the better ways that God has for you. In November the 9th, 1994, Jeffrey Maine was driving through downtown West Haven, Connecticut. He thought he noticed a problem with his brakes. When he got out to check, he put his car into park. He got out, started to look at his brakes, when suddenly the car slipped into reverse. And it started flying down the street. The steering wheel spun and sent the car into a never-ending spin. Jeffrey's car started circling round and round and round and round, blocking traffic in West Haven's busiest intersection. Well, the police, the fire departments were called, but there was nothing they could do but just watch. The car had a full tank of gas. For two hours, they sat there and they watched the car speed round and round the intersection. Finally, city officials called in road construction crews. Three earth movers converged on the out-of-control car and held it until the firefighters could break the window and turn off the ignition. The car was totaled. But here's my question for you. Have you been spinning around and round in circles? Strongholds send us in the wrong direction. Arguments keep us moving in that direction, whereas high things send us into that final tailspin where we get stuck and we can't receive the help we need. All three are rusty nails that stick in our brains, foes that need to be removed, and thus the fight begins. And Paul tells us that the fight is in two stages. He says stage one involves pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And then after the rusty nails are removed, we're ready for stage two, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, the strategy for the victory in this battle of the mind is twofold. Casting down... And then bring it around. See, when it comes to casting down, when the NIV translates these phrases, pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments, it uses the term demolish. I like that. It shows the severity of what we need to do. We need to demolish these evil thoughts. You see, the reason we never get victory in our thought life is that we're not ruthless enough in our approach. See, you don't transform years of wrong thinking by simply memorizing a few verses or reading a quote of the day at breakfast. You have to hold up every area of your life and inspect it in light of God's Word. Am I thinking correctly here? Am I seeing life from God's perspective or from my own? And if an idea doesn't fit into God's will, you need to blow it up, man. It needs to be demolished. It takes courage and brutal honesty to stop hiding behind excuses and justifications and old assumptions. High walls crumble only when our pride is dealt a death blow. Too many Christians become, too many people become Christians thinking all God wants to do in their life is to just eliminate a few discomforts and add some of the pleasantries that they've been missing. 
Hey, I got news for you. God is far more ambitious than that in your life. The Greek word translated pulling down can also be rendered extinction. God wants these false assumptions, these impure imaginations, these haunting insecurities that roam the forest of your thinking. He wants these things to die off without multiplying. He wants them to become extinct. He wants you to rid them for good. I like this poem. It makes the point. A naughty little weed one day poked up its tiny head. Tomorrow I will pull you up, old Mr. Weed, I said. But I put off the doing till when next I passed that way, the hateful thing had spread abroad and laughed at my dismay. A naughty little thought one day popped right into my head or my mind. Oh no, I cried. I'll put you out tomorrow, you will find. But once again, I put it off till like the little weed, the ugly thing sprang up afresh and grew into a deed. So you can't tolerate the mental weeds. You allow them to fester, you allow them to grow, and you won't live a life that's pleasing to God. you got to pull them up by the root. But the path to victory is two-staged. First, you pull up the weeds, you cast down the strongholds, then you capture, you corral all your wild and wandering thoughts. You see, the mind has to be retrained to obey God or it will return to the false assumptions that you've torn down. Paul writes, we should be bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Here's a couple of other renderings that help us understand Paul's point. Peterson paraphrases verse 5. Fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. That's very helpful. J.B. Phillips puts it. We fight to capture every thought until it acknowledges the authority of Christ. In essence, our minds have to be wrestled and pinned and made to think godly thoughts. See, here's Paul's strategy. Bag up your thoughts. Take charge of your wandering mind and your fickle emotions. Make every impulse harmonize with the truth that's in Christ. When my son Mac was younger, I would take him to hit baseballs. I had two five-gallon buckets filled with baseballs. I threw them and Mac hit them. When we were done, we'd have about 75 baseballs scattered all over the outfield in the parking lot. And I had a rule. You hit them, you get them. That's when we would start gathering them up and returning them to the bucket. And this is the mental image I have of verse 5. We need to gather up every stray thought and put it in God's bucket. We need to bring it into conformity with God's will. In Isaiah 55 verse 8, God tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. God's thoughts don't come naturally to us. They have to be learned. Our minds need to be renewed. This is especially true in the face of our fluctuating feelings and our fickle emotions. We need to embrace and learn God's truth and anchor our feelings to God's Word. See, airplane pilots, they describe the dangerous phenomena they encounter when flying through a bank of clouds with zero visibility. 
the pilot is often struck by a sensation that the wings of his plane are no longer parallel to the ground, that the airplane has gone into a nosedive. Of course, a quick peek at the instrument panel says everything's okay. It's a strange sensation. You get the urge to grab the stick and right the plane, but the instruments say no. What do you do? Do you trust your feelings or do you trust your instruments? A pilot in that situation has to forcibly deny his feelings and make himself trust in the truth he's gleaning from the instrument panel. And this is exactly how we need to operate as Christians. God's Word tells us that we were made in His image, that He loves us, that He's forgiven us, that He'll see us through. But we feel alone. We get afraid. Worries run wild in our imaginations. It's in those moments that we have to capture those wildcat rebel thoughts and make them obey the truth that we know from God's Word. We have to force our thoughts to trust in Christ. Like a child with a net rounding up butterflies, we need to snatch up and focus all our stray thoughts. Reminds me of the cowboy. He was driving down a deserted road. His dog was in the back of the pickup. And he was pulling a trailer that held his faithful horse in the trailer. Well, suddenly he lost control of the vehicle. He ran the rig down a steep embankment. All three parties, the cowboy, the dog, and the horse, they suffered multiple wounds, severe fractures. Well, the policemen finally got on the scene, and they found the horse first. They saw the severity of the injuries. The policeman pulled out his revolver and boom, put him out of his misery, put him down. Well, then he found the dog. The dog, too, was critically injured. Took one look at the dog, boom, put him out of his misery. Of course, the injured cowboy, he was witnessing all this. Thus, when the officer got over and saw the busted up driver, he raced to his side and he asked him how he was doing, to which the cowboy replied, I've never felt better. (laughs) Oh, he was aching all right, but seeing what had happened to the horse and the dog, he suppressed his feelings and he pulled his thoughts together and he uttered the right response. And that is what we have to train ourselves to do. We don't always feel like obeying God or trusting God. That's when we have to deny those feelings. We have to gather up our thoughts and we have to conform them to God's truth. Of course, this is easier said than done. That's why we need help. We need some spiritual firepower. And thus Paul writes in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. God provides us a potent arsenal. Did you know that the best-selling video franchise of all time is still the Mario Brothers? Since Mario's first appearance in 1981, over 500 million applications of Mario have been sold worldwide. I remember when my kids got their first Nintendo I spent more time bouncing little Mario and his brother Luigi around the Mushroom Kingdom than I care to admit. It was a little embarrassing. I spent more time playing with that thing than they did. And if I recall correctly, if you bounce Mario to the right spot there on the 
bored, he suddenly swells up. He gets enlarged. He gains the capacity to fire a stream of BBs. It's called firepower. And the key to success in the game is the same as the key to success in the spiritual life. We need to get firepower. In Christ, we have been guaranteed supernatural firepower. The Spirit of God enlarges our capabilities and our capacities. We can use spiritual weapons to pull down these strongholds and these arguments and these high things that stand against the truth of God. The power of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures, the blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, spiritual gifts, prayer, love, hope, faith, fellowship. These are all the weapons of our warfare and they are mighty in God. The more we dwell on God's blessings and abide in His love, the more power is unleashed in our lives. Paul states, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The word carnal means fleshly. My flesh constitutes me apart from God. Anything that derives from me, my goodness, my muscle, my ingenuity, that's the flesh. Carnal weapons are self-help techniques. You hear about these. You can get books from the bookstore. Mind control games. Behavior modification. Remedies that are independent of the word and will and ways of God. You see, militaries, they don't fight conventional battles. Or they don't fight nuclear battles with conventional weapons. And Christians shouldn't fight spiritual battles with fleshly weapons. These bright ideas, these human manipulations. Guys, there are no substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. You will never demolish spiritual strongholds and arguments and high things apart from God's power. Hey, a bank loan might alleviate your cash flow crunch, but how is it going to corral the greed that caused your spending in the first place? A nicotine patch can help with withdrawals, but does it, does it supply the calm you need the next time you get stressed? A cold shower might relieve some sexual tension, but how do you conquer the lust that churns in your heart? A bottle of pills will get you to sleep at night, but will it resolve the guilty conscience that keeps you awake? Here's my point. Human remedies may do some good, but spiritual progress, permanent change, is the result of the power and presence of Jesus Christ. When negative feelings or sinful impulses rise up to overwhelm us, that's when we need to open our Bibles. We need to turn to God. Remember, you are the apple of the Father's eye. He's chosen you. He loves you. He'll never forsake you. In fact, He gave His only Son to save you. When we grab hold of God's truth, the Spirit sees to it that His Word grabs hold of us. If we savor the truths of God, His Spirit makes them realities in our lives. They validate. They become validated by our personal experiences. Ask God to help you recall the Scripture at key points in your day. He has ways of making His truth real to us. Author G.K. Chesterton once wrote, I am convinced that the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to close it again on something solid. 
This means that we need to chew on God's Word. The Scripture is the solid food. We need to grow our faith. See, here's what Paul is telling us. As we pull down strongholds, along with the arguments and the high things that prop them up, as we capture every stray thought and make them obedient to God's truth, we're fueling the process by digesting God's Word and walking by faith and abiding in His presence and relying on His strength in us. Once there was a little girl, she complained about a stomach ache. Her mom explained that her stomach hurt because it was empty. That if she put something in it, she would be fine. Well, weeks later, the little girl overheard her pastor complain about a headache. And she remembered her mom's words. The little girl told him, Pastor, my mom says your head hurts because it's empty. But if you put something in it, you'll be fine. And spiritually, that's true for us all. We need to open mind, insert word. Can you say it with me? Open mind, insert word. Be a student of the scriptures. Mull it over. Hide it in your heart. Apply it to your life. You are not a serious Christian unless you get serious about God's word. We create big problems for ourselves if we allow our minds to drift aimlessly and never dwell on God's truth. Think about it. You would never allow a toddler to wander through the neighborhood by himself. You would never let your dog just wander around in the grocery store unattended. Why let your mind wander around aimlessly without direction? Earlier I read 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. You could put it, keep your mind on a leash. I've heard it said, empty lots... And empty minds collect trash. Vacant lots are notorious eyesores, aren't they? And so are minds that are void of spiritual input. We lose the battle for our minds if we leave them empty and unguarded. See, not setting your mind on Jesus is letting your mind get pulled and drawn toward the negative and the nasty. Paul closes this morning's passage in verse 6. He says, in being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. See, this letter was prompted because the Corinthians thought it was their duty to correct Paul. In reality, it was Paul who needed to correct them. And here he tells the Corinthians, if they want to discipline others, first they need to reorder their own thinking to obey Christ. Have a disciplined mind. Live a disciplined life. Then God can use you to disciple others. And here's the question that I want to leave with you this morning. Who minds your mind? Who minds your mind? Is your mind being renewed? For 40 years, the United Negro College Fund has had a motto. It's now become a famous jingle. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. And that is especially true for a Christian. If we don't win the battle over sin in our minds, then we'll end up fighting it in our words or in our actions. We need to put an end to sin before that thought grows into a deed. Always remember, a life that glorifies God begins in the mind. This is a battle 
we cannot afford to lose. 